this podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. of people take a DNA test every year. For Kathy Gilchrist, the journey to learn more about her family history started in 2017. I had the option to check a little box that says I was an adopted child. I would be interested in finding um, uh, siblings or uh, other relatives. The DNA test brought back a first match. Her third cousin, Susan Gilmore, a successful genealogist in Maine. We were, first of all, amazed that we were a lot alike. We both were English majors. We were both teachers. Since unlocking the secrets to ancestry is Gilmore's profession, she decided to help Gilchrist get more answers. And by far, the hardest part was finding her father. So I'm looking at the surnames, I'm looking at names in common, I'm looking at geography, and his name was William Bradford Bishop Jr. And that's the problem. The U.S. government has been trying to track William Bradford Bishop down since the 70s. He's accused of brutally murdering his wife and three children. In 2014, he was named to the FBI's most wanted list. She goes, okay, I found your father. All I'm going to do is give you his name. I said, so, well, is it someone famous? And she said, um, yeah. I just laughed. I laughed. We have a great sense of humor in my um, adoptive family. And um, I thought, of course my father's a murderer. As for if Kathy's mom knew of her father's dark past, she isn't sure. But she's glad she didn't find out until she was older and is more than happy with those who helped raise her. I think she knows, and I think she's smiling that we all accepted each other. Two women murdered in separate incidents after hitchhiking near Breckenridge. Those cases went unsolved for nearly 40 years. But thanks to DNA technology and investigators mm. who refused to give up, police think they have that killer in custody. Just remarkable police work. Investigators believe the suspect remained in Colorado after the murders. CBS4's Tori Mason at CBI headquarters, one of the agencies involved. Tori, investigators say blood found on a glove helped solve these crimes decades later. It's really crazy, Jim. You know, in the past 15 months, Metro Denver Crime Stoppers has solved eight crimes with the use of forensic genealogy. When these women were killed, forensic use of DNA evidence wasn't even involved. Now these advances in technology are bringing more families closer to justice. I have lived with a monster in my mind since I was 11 years old. It's a monster the daughter of Bobby Joe Oberholzer never thought would leave. Now, the man suspected of killing her mother and Annette Schnee is in custody 39 years later. On February 24th, we arrested Alan Lee Phillips. The now 70-year-old was just a few hours away from where their bodies were found. Lying in the snow after being shot in the darkness by themselves dying. Mitch Morrissey, co-founder of United Data Connect, used genealogy to help solve a four-decade-long puzzle in one year. It was blood that was on a glove of hers, 
and the blood was a mixture of her blood and an unknown male. We were able to tell them who the male was. That male is the third cousin of Phillips, a distant branch on his family tree. Who are they related to? You look at obituaries to see if somebody had children. It's a cold case investigators could never let go. The victim's families are grateful they didn't. Now I can rest knowing justice will be served. <clears throat> now, of course, Phillips is still considered innocent until proven guilty, but none of the cases solved by UDC genealogy have actually gone to trial. The founder says that these cases are so old, the suspects have already died before they actually get to zero in on them, and the suspects that were found alive all pled guilty. Reporting in Lakewood, I'm Tori Mason, covering Colorado First. This is an old case, um, Bobby Oberholzer and Annette Schnee. On January 7th, 1982, Bobby's body was found near a scenic overlook five miles south of Breckenridge, Colorado. Uh, she had two gunshot wounds. Her house keys were found at the scene and an orange sock, but it wasn't her orange sock. Six months later, police found the body of 21-year-old Annette Schnee in a creek near a side road of that highway, 13 miles away. She had also been shot to death. And weirdly, police discovered that she was wearing the match to the orange sock that was found at Barbara's scene, Bobby Joe's scene. The, the women had vanished on the same day, on January the 6th, and both had been shot with a medium caliber revolver. Police were certain that the women were murdered on the same night by the same person, and they believe that the person most likely lost Annette's sock after he killed Bobby. So the prime suspect in this case was Bobby Joe, Bobby's husband, Jeff. However, he always maintained his innocence. They had been married since 1977, and he ran a little appliance repair business in Breckenridge. They lived out in Alma, about 14 miles away. And according to him, the day that she vanished was totally unremarkable. She left around 7.15 and she hitchhiked into work. And then around 6.20 p.m. that night, she called and told him that she was out with her friends. He asked if she needed a ride. She said she was going to get one home. He made dinner, waited for her. At some point, he fell asleep. He woke up around midnight and discovered she had not returned. So he waited till the bars closed at 2 a.m. When she didn't return then, he began looking for her. And he found out from her friends that she had left the bar at 7.30 p.m., basically an hour after she called. They all assumed she had just gotten a ride home. He tried to report her missing, but he was told that it was too early to file a report. He went home and waited for her. The next morning, a farmer who lived about 30 miles outside of Breckenridge found Bobby's license. Jeff and two of his friends went to pick it up. On the way there, they spotted something in a snow-covered field. It was her blue backpack, which she always carried with her when she was going to and from work. There was a blood-spattered glove nearby and some bloody tissues. Jeff's friends started to search for her, and two hours later, her body was found, about 15 miles away from where the backpack was recovered. Police only found Bobby's footprints at the crime scene. There was a plastic cord that was tied around one of her wrists, and the same day that her body was found, Annette had been reported missing. She was a cocktail waitress from Frisco, Colorado, who also hitchhiked to and from work. So because of the similarities, the police immediately connected these two cases. They questioned 
Jeff about this. They questioned Jeff about Bobby's murder and about Annette's murder. And at first, he denied knowing her. So after seeing her picture on a news broadcast, Jeff said that he had met Annette. He claimed that he had picked her up one day and that he had given her his business card. He denied any involvement in her disappearance or Bobby's death. Six months later, they found Annette's body on July 3rd, 1982. Jeff's business card and the other orange sock were found where Bobby was located. So Jeff has been a suspect in this case this whole time, basically his whole life. The cops were trying to figure out what happened to Annette on the night of January the 6th. Annette was last seen in Breckenridge around 4 p.m. in a conversation with an unidentified dark-haired woman. She was supposed to work at a bar that night. Police believe that she left Breckenridge around 5 p.m. and she hitchhiked back home to get ready. The killer picked her up and drove her 20 miles south. He took her down a small dead-end road where he sexually assaulted her in a vehicle. While she was putting her clothes back on, she tried to escape, and she forgot her other orange sock. The killer apparently then returned to Breckenridge, where he picked up Bobby. He drove her 10 miles south to this overlook, where he also tried to rape her. However, she apparently fought back and tried to escape his vehicle. As she attempted to escape, the orange sock fell out of the vehicle. So she was shot twice as she was escaping over a snowbank on the side of the highway, and then she bled to death after like falling into the snow. Jeff, the husband, he took a polygraph test and he passed. He claimed to have had an alibi for the night of the murders, but police still considered him a suspect, and he continued to maintain his innocence. The cases remain unsolved. However, DNA had been recovered from, from the evidence of the scene. For years, this guy has been a suspect. He had maintained that he was with an acquaintance that nobody could find for a really long time. They had this other suspect or person of interest that was the female that had been seen with a net. The weapon used in the murders was a, either a 38 or a 357 Remington Peters copper jacketed hollow point bullet. The gun itself was never located. So what's interesting about this case is, one, it relates to the area that we're looking at for season two. That's interesting. But what just happened in this case is they arrested a suspect. Now, they had different suspects over the years. One was the cab driver, Thomas Edward Luther, who beat and raped a hitchhiker after picking her up in Breckenridge in February of 1982. While in jail, he allegedly bragged about being responsible for the murders, but he failed two lie detector tests when questioned. Investigators later learned from his girlfriend that he didn't come home that night. He also did not show up for work the day before or the day after. When questioned, he lied and said he was at work. However, his DNA was not found at the scene. Despite this, investigators looked into the possibility they had an accomplice whose DNA was left at the scene. And these serial killers are going to come up uh, a lot more. But the important part about most of these guys is they've been caught. The question is, have you heard of them? And are they responsible for crimes that they've never been considered to be suspects for? From CrimeMagazine.com. On February 13th, 2014, serial killer Tom Luther strikes in Colorado. On February 13th, 1982, Tom Luther rapes and beats a 21-year-old woman named Mary who accepted a ride from him near Breckenridge, Colorado. Luther was traced through his truck and arrested. Luther told a psychiatrist that the girl reminded him of his mother. The psychiatrist concluded that the attacks might have resulted from his mother's physical and extreme verbal abuse. Whatever the case, Luther reportedly told an inmate at the time that the girl won't live and they'll never find her body. Within months of 
Luther's release from prison in 1993, Cher Elder, 20, disappeared after leaving a Central City casino with Luther. Around the same time, another young woman who had advertised a used car for sale was brutally attacked with a knife. Luther was the obvious suspect in the disappearance of Cher Elder, and he fled to West Virginia. There, he raped and beat a hitchhiker. He was caught and convicted for that attack, and then returned to Colorado. Cher Elder's body was finally found in 1995. She had been shot three times in the back of the head, but her body was so decomposed by the time it was found that evidence of sexual assault or other trauma could not be determined. The victim of the knife attack saw Luther's picture in the newspaper and contacted police. Luther was later convicted of this attack as well. While in prison, Luther wrote to his former girlfriend, Strange, isn't it, that I am what I detest in a human being. It wasn't sex at all. It was assault and anger. Pure meanness. From a subconscious level, I can't deal with the lack of self-control I have. I guess I really am dangerous if I can hurt other people like this. Still, the judge refused to allow the jury to consider these statements or his previous rape convictions at the Cher Elder murder trial. This set off an uproar when a lone juror refused to vote for first-degree murder. Luther received a 48-year sentence for second-degree murder. Elder's family and the other 11 jurors began to lobby to change one of the fundamental precepts of American criminal justice, the unanimous verdict. The other suspect was Tracy Petricelli, who shot his fiance to death in Seattle, Washington in October of 1981, and then he went on a multi-state crime spree. During this time, he had stayed at the Holiday Inn in Frisco, which was where Annette had worked. Although the DNA at the crime scene did not match him, investigators noted that he often picked up male hitchhikers, and the male hitchhikers were accomplices in his crime. He is believed to have killed these accomplices, and then they thought maybe the DNA belonged to one of them. Unusual scene in a Washoe County courtroom this morning. A convicted murderer listening to his testimony given 37 years ago read back to him. Colobate News Now's Ed Pierce was there. It's unprecedented as far as we know in Washoe County history, a penalty hearing for a convicted murderer being reenacted for a jury, 37 years after the original jury heard the same words. Tracy Petroselli was convicted in 1982 of the murder of Reno car dealer James Wilson and received the death penalty. Two years ago, an appeals court confirmed the conviction once again, but overturned the sentence. The issue was the testimony of a psychiatrist who interviewed Petroselli without the presence of his attorney. So a new penalty hearing was ordered. The court decided the best way to handle it after so many years was to have a new jury hear much of the testimony from the original hearing, minus, of course, the psychiatrist's testimony that led to the reversal. So the jury has been hearing it word for word, as if from a script read by Deputy District Attorney Luke Pregnaman, with responses from the witness chair read by a series of stand-ins. This morning, Petroselli, now 37 years older and in a wheelchair, listened to his own testimony from 1982. Much of it focused on conflicts between statements he made about the crime, which he insisted was an accident, as he and Wilson struggled over a gun while they were on a test drive in a moving vehicle. You don't know one way or the other whether you ever happened to mention that Mr. Wilson appeared to be going for a gun? I probably have. I discussed the case in jail, probably said it to somebody. And if it really was an accident, whether he'd sought medical care for Wilson. April 20th, you said you didn't make any attempt. Isn't that correct? I said that I didn't take him, try to take him to the hospital. No, sir. Petroselli seemed to listen with interest to his 37-year-old testimony. He's seeking to have his sentence reduced to life without the possibility of parole. But once again, that life depends on the outcome of this hearing. It's expected to wind up before the end of the week. Still to be heard, something that wasn't part of the trial or the hearing in 1982, impact statements from James Wilson's family. Ed Pierce, Colo 8 News Now. 
Investigators believe that the killer might be someone else, someone familiar with the rural road where Annette's body was discovered. And in January of 2015, investigators asked the public for help. It's not known if any new leads were uncovered from that, but in March of 2021, they finally arrested and charged Alan Lee Phillips. I think he was arrested the last week of February and then charged the first week of March. They charged him with both murders. So he's been charged with kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon, and he's being hailed without bail. And although it's not been confirmed, it's suspected that this is a case where we will find out that genetic genealogy was used to connect Alan Phillips to this case. How long do you think he sweated that? Oh, my God. He must have been sweating this for the whole time. Because I, I, you know, it's amazing to me. And I'm not sure if you mentioned it or not, but it's amazing that Jeff, Bobby's husband, isn't sitting in jail or perhaps, well, I don't know if Colorado has the death penalty. Right, exactly. Because, so he at first said that he did not know Annette, but he came back and he told the police like, oh yeah, I did run into her and I gave her my business card. And the business card was found along with the orange sock. Okay, one of the victims is Jeff's wife. Right, that's Bobby Joe. The other victim is somebody that he said he didn't know. However... his business card was at the scene. Correct. And but so he says, no, I don't know her. And then in a what seemed to be like a guilty conscious type way, sees a news broadcast and he says, oh, yeah, I think I did encounter her. And I don't know. Let's see. He he met her once. He picked, he picked her, her up, up and when, gave her a ride and gave her the business card. Right. And that just screams, I'm guilty. Oh, I, I totally agree. And and so we don't know if it's DNA um, that has brought this to a closure. But it's interesting to me at how... So the DNA in this case saved several people, even though it doesn't seem like a few of them really deserve to be saved. Justice is um, actually punishing whomever did it. And it's for the victims. And so, you know, it wouldn't be the same to have just one of these random guys who committed another crime that they thought they could lump it in on. So they wiggled, they they wanted to make it work for all these years. And they didn't, which is, it says a lot for law enforcement that they did not pursue uh, Jeff with charges, even though everything was stacking up against him. It looks like we're going to find out that he really wasn't involved, but how much does that suck to be him? Yeah. So basically 40 years of his life have been, you know, overshadowed with the fact that everybody thinks he killed not only his wife, but another woman. Right. And it's interesting. First of all, let me just point out, this is not the orange socks murder related to Henry Lee Lucas, because that's what a lot of people are going to start connecting this on the internet. No, it's somebody was just wearing, there was a pair of orange socks that one of these ladies was wearing and the other one was at the other crime scene. Right. And it's interesting because this case is, like I said, it's over 40 years. It's almost 40 years. This is the kind of thing that I think is just going to, I feel like this is going to start happening a lot. It's going to be an avalanche of, you know, cold cases, uh, brutal homicides being solved. And it's from investigators 40 years ago 
thinking, well, let's keep this just in case. I mean, it's weird because I wonder who thought, you know, was DNA even a concept back then? From the innocenceproject.org, on July 18, 2017, the evolution of DNA evidence in the courtroom. In April, Robert J. Norris released Exonerated, A History of the Innocence Movement, a new book that takes an in-depth look into the criminal justice movement that evolved out of exposing wrongful conviction cases. Earlier this week, Reason.com published an interesting excerpt from Exonerated, outlining how DNA testing became a powerful tool for proving innocence in so many cases. Exonerated recounts how DNA testing was first used to prove a person's innocence in a criminal trial in England in 1986. Richard Buckland was suspected of murdering two teenage girls, who were each found raped and strangled. In one of the cases, Buckland had actually confessed, but ultimately, DNA testing of evidence from each crime scene excluded Buckland, revealing that Buckland had falsely confessed and helped identify the actual perpetrator of the two crimes. According to the excerpt, as DNA evidence became more commonly used in the courtroom, so did the misapplication of the science. A company called LifeCodes developed a method they said could identify individuals from dried bloodstains and biological fluids recovered after the fact with exceptional accuracy. At the time, DNA testing was considered to be so reliable and cutting edge that the evidence was almost never challenged by defense lawyers in court. But Innocence Project co-founders Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield grew concerned when they learned that life code scientists weren't following proper scientific processes and were therefore yielding inaccurate results and possibly leading to the wrongful conviction of innocent people. So was the case of Joseph Castro, based on a drop of blood on his watch that life codes said matched the adult victim, Castro had been charged with the 1987 murder of a pregnant woman and her two-year-old daughter. Sheck and Newfield were his attorneys. When they learned of the distressing lab practices that were being used at LifeCodes, they enlisted the help of Eric Lander, a human geneticist and mathematician, and Richard Roberts, a biochemist and molecular biologist, who suggested that the expert witnesses from both the prosecution and the defense meet to discuss the evidence. The experts concluded that the method used by LifeCodes was not scientifically reliable enough to come to the conclusion that the blood matched to the victim. The lesson from the Castro case was that DNA testing is a reliable tool for solving criminal cases, but the testing has to be correctly performed and the results correctly interpreted. You can find more information about DNA in the courtroom in the show notes. Okay, so what made law enforcement in you know, the 70s and early 80s, what made them say, hey... Let's keep this fluid and just in case. Well, so blood typing was a thing. Phenotyping was a thing. They could have used the blood on the tissues to match the blood types between two individuals. Okay, so there was a reason for them to be. Yeah, they kept all of that because it was part of the crime scene. At least they thought it was. I mean, when you have bloody gloves and bloody tissues that are, you know, a couple feet from one of the bodies, you keep it. You know what I mean? And it well, yeah, that makes sense. It just, I think it's, which I get, I didn't really think about the blood typing, but I feel like it's amazing that they're able to go back and probably sort of a phenomenon that we're never going to know the other side of. But I would love to know what it's like to be someone to, that has committed something that your DNA could possibly be associated with, knowing that, you know, the clock's running out, possibly. Call them up and be like, hey, did you check the DNA? Does it match me? I don't know that, you know. (laughs) I mean, that's a terrible way to look at it, but I do think it's only going to work in a handful of cases because there are, think of it like a husband and wife murder from the 70s that wasn't solved. 
that DNA won't make any sense because they their DNA would have been around each other if they lived together or had a relationship. It's these murders right. that'll be solved. Right. And well, you know how it used to be like a long time ago when DNA was first making its forensic appearance. Oh, there's not enough material for the DNA or whatever. Uh, we can only run the test one time, so make sure it counts, that kind of thing. And then it, as the technology evolved, it's like, oh, yeah, give me that tiny little you know, microscopic piece and I'll multiply it and make it huge and we can run a million tests on it. And so I sort of think that the being able to see it, I think that that is going to that's going to help. Just like the way the technology has made it easier to get more information from less material DNA-wise, it's going to evolve to where identification becomes easier and easier and easier. Now, you're right. In a domestic-type situation, I assume you mean like when one spouse has killed the other spouse? Any situation where it's like in a home, technically unsolved. Like say say Bobby Joe had been killed in... Uh, the driveway of her home with Jeff here. You know what I mean? Like if, if, if well, if Jeff had done it, you mean? Uh, well, even if he hadn't done it, same situation. But like the the place that he takes her is closer to her house. Like Jeff's DNA could have been at the scene. Do you see what I mean? Right, but there's only like certain circumstances. So okay, yes, DNA being at a scene does not a murderer make. However, you know something like. Uh, a third party, in this case, that would be a male, uh, his Alan Lee Phillips. Okay, so so Jeff's DNA being present, if it were closer to home, so yeah. But if there's an unidentified third party's right, that's you know, that's the key word under her party. fingers or like somewhere where it makes sense. You know, that's going to speak volumes, and in fact. You know, I'm torn on this. I get really excited when these old cases start getting solved. And when they're solved with the scientific certainty that I feel like comes with DNA. So, you know, based on that, I get really excited about it. But I'm also torn because it makes me which I haven't committed any crimes that I'm aware of that I would get in trouble for, like, you know, my DNA being run. But it makes me worry that it is so strong. Uh, it is so like a factual piece of evidence. Like when they screw up, you literally have no way out. What I'm saying is if something happens where your DNA were to match, however, it isn't your DNA somehow, okay? There's an error somehow. Think of how hard that is to discount. Well, is there? I'm hoping they're being careful about things like this. This one, I think, is more obvious because there's a bloody glove, you know, bloody Kleenexes. They've arrested him. Probably it's a genetic match of some kind. The unidentified DNA at the crime scene is more complicated for a number of reasons because you don't always find it. You don't always know to look for it. Sometimes crime scenes are older than DNA could have survived. Like finding a body that's been in the woods for five years, it's unlikely you're going to get DNA from those type scenes. It depends, I think, because I feel like I think that under the fingernails, somebody's DNA would survive well, yeah, they, it, it could, but what I'm saying is 
the longer between the incident and the discovery of the body, the more chance there is for degradation of the evidence or spoilage of the evidence. And so what happens in those cases is, yes, I, I think there's going to be an avalanche because what you said is absolutely true. The amount of DNA needed at the scene to connect a potential suspect to the scene has shrunk. But the chances that DNA was kept, because like this, they didn't know they kept his DNA when they kept his DNA. Right. That's what I was wondering. Like, why did they keep it? Knowing, Bloody not gloves knowing at the they scene were... is what they kept. Right. Right. Okay. So, and, and I've, I've read up on this case. I actually read up on this case before this happened. People speculated that one of the girls put up a fight at the scene and bloody the guy's nose. And that's how they got this evidence. That was a, that was like a Reddit post I read maybe three or four years ago. I think someone mentioned that and I've seen it again recently. Someone else like linked back to it. So what, I, I would have blamed the husband short I, of the DNA evidence. I, what, I would, have, everybody would have that. We just got out of the McDonald case and that's, you know, these cases sort of prove that random shit can happen. Well, it really does. And like, it's, this is one of, you know, it's really unbelievable that not only was his wife killed, another woman was killed and she had his business card. It's unbelievable that it wouldn't be him. And yet here you have it. And that's, that's sort of my point in this case is, and that's, well, first of all, this case links geographically to what I am launching for our season two. I have a question for you. So you said um, the degradation of the DNA. Um, now, it's my understanding that time alone does not degrade DNA. No, I'm talking about exposure to elements, spoilage. Okay. So, and here, here's what I mean by that. A body laying in the woods, exposed or partly buried, over time, will be exposed to other DNA. It will be exposed to rain. It will be exposed to sunshine. It will be exposed to oxygen. It will be exposed to more decomposition. All of those things potentially spoil DNA as evidence. Now, like you said, there are instances where on a piece of clothing that, for instance, is underneath the body or protected from the elements in some other way, it's like potentially, yes, DNA could be found. But... It's also just as likely that DNA could be washed away, destroyed. Say one of these girls had only been found in 2015, but they had been out there since 1982. And hunters had come by and trash had been thrown out the window on the highway. You end up with DNA. <laughs> See, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, like having to unprove it. Like you threw your soda and it ended up by her. So your DNA got on her. Right. And like that was something we you and I have been talking about this, not in the concept, uh, not in the context of it being related to a murder case, but being related to an unidentified person's case. So geographically, this is a weird area of the country. And for this to be happening in Colorado is sort of a big deal for me because a lot of our cases are going to take place about three hours south of here for season two. Um, and we're looking at some Iowa cases as well, not necessarily linked to the same thing, but just because we find some of them interesting. There was like one case you sent me recently, and for some reason, I get the heebie-jeebies from it, and I just can't shake why. Um, I think you said, does that like 
ring a bell for you or, or like give you a vibe. Yeah. Yeah. It did. It gave me like an Israel keys vibe, but I can't, I can't figure out how all of that would work. And I sort of go into conspiracy land in my head with some of those cases. However, one of the things that the reason I'm bringing this case up is it takes place in Breckenridge, Colorado. I have been looking at cases of clusters around the country. Iowa has one, Nebraska has one and Colorado has one. Colorado is the one I wanted to focus on for season two. And I basically compiled a list of like 200 names. Some of these cases are starting to be solved. Like recently, the case of the Sumter Doe's was solved. And you and I spent a lot of time on that case. And like we had some interesting alternate theories, but it did two things. One, we weren't right. And, and we had known we were speculating. Well, and I was going to say, we've never talked about the Sumter Dares for the reason that I wasn't confident enough to uh, put it out there. That's exactly that's exactly what I wanted to point out was, so we don't take a lot of risk when it comes to like our own speculation, our own research, our own investigation. We are in season two of this, but from my side, I've asked you to help me see if I can find a serial killer. And what we end up looking at in season two is a lot of cases that I don't think people have heard as much about. And this is an example of one of those cases. Like if you go looking for Bobby Oberholzer and Annette Schnee, there is a, a May 1st, 1991 uh, unsolved mystery episode where they come up. And then there's a couple of people that have sort of touched on their cases. They're not a focus for me. Well, right. Because they're not missing people. And a lot of times when the only thing that is, has not happened is in this case, the assumption would be made. The only thing that hasn't happened is like the husband has been charged and convicted. It does lose. uh, Now that's not the case. It's ended up. Someone else has been charged, but just the circumstances, they lend itself to the never ending story and people just get bored. Right. And you mentioned something to me recently that I want to bring up because you, okay. So you said that, Sometimes cases frustrate you, and I, I don't know if you want to run with this or if you want me like to say what it was, but you were getting frustrated by the cases that were solved or like known, I think is what you meant. Right. Um, uh, so I guess this is what you're talking about. Uh, I get really irritated at um, open cases that are actually closed without justice being served. And in those types of cases, you can tell them. And actually, I like it when I come across the cases like what you mentioned today, because that gives me pause and my assumptions. But there's a, a clear situation of some sort of domestic violence or, you know, there's a clear uh, there's a clear story of what happened and you don't even hardly have to read between the lines to see what happened. And yet no one has ever been charged with the crime. That really frustrates me. I, and I wanted to point that out and I wanted to ask you a question. So I stopped Israel Keys. I stopped the investigation into Israel Keys for two reasons. One, because it went like when I say I stopped it, I stopped it for the podcast because it started getting into territory where two things were happening. One, it was going to get boring because it was a lot of me going places with maps and looking around at things that made no sense. It's hard to document that audio wise. That was that was going to be where we were headed. But video wise, it might make more sense. But the second thing we discovered 
broke one of your rules. One of your rules was that we weren't going to like dig up cases where people had resolution and put them on a podcast for entertainment. That was a rule that you had because I had two or three cases where I got to a certain point in them and you looked at them and you said, no, I'm not speculating in that because uh, there's one particular case I'm thinking of. The, the, the family there thinks that's an accidental death and I'm not speculating in it because you have nothing evidence-wise to steer me elsewhere. Is right. basically and, what and that doesn't mean that my conclusion is any different. It's just, I don't, I don't know what would be worse. I don't care to find out what would be worse as far as, you know, believing there was an accidental death or something, you know, sort of benign uh, and having grieved and gotten over it. And then somebody saying something like, it was, well, that's not what happened. It was a serial killer. So I don't know. But, you know, in cases where it's unknown, it's fine to speculate. And, but I still have, like, sort of limits. But, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Well, there was another rule. That rule is we don't want to provide defenses to obvious suspects. That's correct. Oh, yes, and, absolutely. Um, I feel like that that is a big mistake. And so I have, you know, I'm not going to dime out the podcasts that have done that. But, you know, when you link a victim of a specific type of crime to a serial killer or you link someone who is not related to a crime back to it just because they're mentioned as a person of interest early on, you potentially give very, very, very uh, easy out for a good defense team or even a half-assed defense team. They can get other people, like say us, if a spouse has killed a spouse and police haven't had like the hard evidence they need to prove it for 10 years or 15 years or whatever, and they come across it in terms of uh, some type of pretty solid evidence and someone has linked a serial killer to that essentially domestic situation reasonable doubt you create reasonable doubt and that that's something i wanted to like be able to to put out here is because i'm not going into that territory but i am looking to see if i can identify potentially an unidentified serial killer this season in an area in colorado (laughs) so yes i am absolutely like i am stepping on some of your rules but i'm trying to do it really carefully and i'm trying to limit it to where we're looking at cases. It's interesting because some of the cases that we're looking at this season are linked to other interesting cases. Well, and um, it's going to be fun for me because I typically work, uh, I do missing people. I feel like everybody deserves to, you know, be the person that they were and not die unknown or not uh, have disappeared and nobody knows what happened to them. That it's a lot easier um, when you speculate on cases like that. When you have cases where people have been murdered, it's harder because, you know, if in the case where it's not blatantly obvious, uh, you have to speculate. And that's going to be really difficult for me to do because I have I, I take people's feelings into account and families, you know, feelings into account and Basically, anything I wouldn't want done to me or my family, I won't do to anybody else. So this is going to be interesting to see how it goes. Today, the cases that we're like covering today, just sort of generally speaking, I'm talking about, uh, I have a thing for survivalists, guys that are uh, 
able to survive, and for some reason, we've never found them again. Um, one of those cases is a gentleman named Eugene Fish, and I will, I will drop a piece in here of me explaining who Eugene Fish is and sort of, of what is thought to have happened to him. From charlieproject.org, Eugene Francis Fish was last seen in his home in rural Cannon City, Colorado, on June 21st, 2004. Lynn Fish, his wife, stated that he left their home angrily after an argument. She called Eugene's father a week later and told him Eugene had left. She stated she believed he left of his own volition. Lynn said Eugene had wanted to be free of responsibilities, had smashed his computer, and cut up his credit cards before departing the house, leaving his cellular phone behind. She believed he was planning to go to Mexico or South America to disappear. Lynn stated that when Eugene left, he was driving his red 2000 Ford F-150 pickup truck. Eugene allegedly said that he would send the truck back to her later. She stated the truck reappeared in the Fish family's driveway days later, three miles inside the lock gate to the property. Lynn called the sheriff's office about Eugene's disappearance in August of 2004, but when she recounted the story of his disappearance to a detective, he told her that Eugene could not be considered a missing person because he had left of his own accord. A friend finally reported him missing on September 1st. Eugene served in the Air Force and then worked with the Naval and Criminal Investigative Service, NCIS, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission before he retired with a pension of over $4,000 a month. He has not attempted to access it since his disappearance, and Lynn is now collecting it in his stead. By August 2004, she had switched all of their joint bank accounts to be in her name only. Eugene has also not used his credit cards, passport, or bank accounts since his disappearance. He was born and raised in New York, where most of his family still lives, and graduated from Sierra College in Londonville, New York. He had lived with several women during his life and had at least one, possibly two, illegitimate children. Prior to his disappearance, Eugene had made statements to the effect that he was disillusioned by his retirement and his marriage. He and Lynn married in 1997, and the couple lived in various places around the country for Eugene's job. When they moved to Colorado upon Upon Eugene's retirement, they purchased a remote 35-acre property and hired workers to construct a modular home. In late 2003, Lynn told one of the workers that Eugene had beaten her. She didn't report the incident to the police, but in January of 2004, she called the sheriff's office to report a shoving incident between herself and her husband. She declined to file a formal complaint, and when investigators spoke to Eugene, he said their problems had been taken care of. No arrests were made in the incident. After his disappearance, Lynn told Eugene's father that he had beaten and shoved her. Lynn apparently made several inconsistent statements about Eugene and his disappearance. She allegedly contradicted herself as to whether or not her husband had physically abused her, whether his truck had ever had a CB radio, and what happened to it, whether the truck had any keys when she found it in her driveway, and how much money Eugene took when he left. The amount she gave varied from $8,500 to $20,000. She initially agreed to take a polygraph, but then changed her mind. Eugene's parents, Bill and Agnes Fish, hired a private investigator and spent an estimated $100,000 in the search for him. In 2007, Bill and Agnes filed a wrongful death suit against Lynn and a neighbor, Johnny Ray Flores. They alleged that Lynn had killed her husband and Flores helped her bury the body. The suit was dismissed in May of 2007 after Bill died at the age of 90. In his will, he left provisions for the foundation of a trust fund to finance the search for Eugene. Agnes died in October of 2009. Eugene is their sole heir with an estate worth an estimated $500,000. Although his family believes he met with foul play, police are investigating Eugene's case as a missing person rather than a crime. Eugene Fish, missing since June 21st, 2004, was 54 years old, 5 feet 11 inches tall, and weighed 190 pounds. He's a Caucasian male with blonde hair and blue eyes. Eugene's nickname is Gene. He has a crippled left finger. He would be 70 years old. His disappearance remains unsolved. So let me ask you this. Um, from a standpoint of, you said you'd like survivalist 
can you elaborate a little bit? It's interesting. Okay. The area that I looked at in, in Colorado had a lot of people who had moved out there to sort of be the hermit from the movie. You find guys that were former State Department employees, former military, and they have all it takes to survive. Some of them have families. Some of them do not. The gist of it is they are hunters. They are outdoorsmen. They really have no reason to to be on the radar. So when they're reported missing, their cases are typically twice as fascinating. Right. Okay. So, and for me, the problem I have is I assume people like that left because they wanted to. Well, and, and that I agree with. So the, Eugene Fish is a case that I looked at for this unidentified body in sky shoots. And I sort of addressed both of these in the Israel Keys season. But I wanted to go back and look more at Eugene Fish because one of my clusters is based, like the, the dead center of it, is in Castillo County, Colorado. And if you branch out from there county by county, and I think I went three counties in every direction, this is really rugged space and terrain out there. It's about three hours south of the, the murder that we talked about being solved with Alan Phillips having killed Bobby Oberholzer and Annette Schnee. This case is south of there, like where we start. The cases I'm looking at, the the dead center point was Castillo County, Colorado, and it's right on the border with New Mexico. The, the gist of it is I started looking at missing persons cases, and I basically went as far back as 1974 and as far forward as last year. And I just wanted to see, could I identify where a serial killer had been operating off the radar, where law enforcement local law enforcement didn't necessarily have the resources to have tracked him and caught him. When I, when I started doing this, I basically made a list of all the reported missing persons cases in the area. And then I went back through and started trying to identify local crimes, looking for burglaries, home invasions, arsons, other murders that were unsolved that potentially could relate to a serial killer operating. So in addition to Eugene Fish, uh, the Sky Shoots guy comes back up again. Do all these missing persons cases in Colorado. They don't all fall into my radius. But when we started looking at those, I just want to point out, I'm going to spend a lot of time this season in two places. One is this Colorado circle that includes a piece of New Mexico. The other is over in Iowa. We're going to talk about a lot of cases from these two states. I do have a question, though. What do you think happened to Eugene Fish? His case is open and cold, but it's really not because they know who did it. They just can't prove it. Well, and so, he doesn't have anybody lobbying for his, you know, justice in his case. Right. His dad died, but he he his dad set up a trust to find him. At the and, that's just one of the cases. At the end of the day, because of the way the situation played out, so they lived together. She was not talking, okay, right. and they had like it's not enough to say that oh yeah well you know Mr. Fish has gone missing. We're going to search the property, and so this is one of those 
sort of unfortunate cases where she just said, I I don't know what transpired, but essentially they got no information from her. And because it was a, uh, you know, because it happened, I assume they're on the property, probably all the evidence involved was, you know, on the property, how it went down evading speaking with the police at all, which by the way, that's a huge red flag to me, even though I understand why people do it. But you have to keep in mind, he's a missing person. He's not been murdered technically yet. And so it, if you, if law enforcement wants to talk to you about your missing person, your spouse, your boyfriend, your child, your parents. It's really strange to evade and not speak with them. And, you know, I don't know if she lawyered up. I don't know what the circumstances were. But ultimately, the reason you don't talk to cops without an attorney, and once you get an attorney, the attorney doesn't, you know, allow you to speak with the police most of the time, is because you don't want to give them the information that they need to arrest you. Right. Whether you're guilty or not is irrelevant. It is. And so, so, okay. So I am a big advocate for people's rights being upheld. I could go either way on talking to the cops really, but in in a murder or when a crime has actually been committed. But if you are genuinely trying to find your spouse who has gone missing, your boyfriend who has gone missing, um, whomever, it's weird if you don't talk to the police. I'm torn on that. Like, I agree with you. It's weird. But at the same time, how many cases have we seen where... That's fine. In a couple of weeks, yeah, you can lawyer up or whatever. But from the jump... Unless you're guilty. And if you're unless, guilty, you have to <laughs> Well, yeah. And, and I, I don't want people to get away with anything. I just... What I'm saying is it didn't seem like she was very interested in finding him. It really came to light that he was missing because he missed sort of his communication with his parents. Yeah. Right. And they didn't live close, but he talked to them often. And so after a little bit, they reported him missing. She didn't, I don't think. And then her uh, story was that he had taken a bunch of like cash money but she had taken he had taken cash money and he was going to go live in the wild. Twenty five or thirty thousand dollars is what she said. It was weird. It was yeah, a strange and, and it, detail. And he had the returning truck. He was last seen June twenty first, two thousand four, and in August she had switched all the joint bank accounts to her name only. Which, what do you think about that? Does that lead to guilt or innocence? If he was dead, what would the point of that be? What do you mean if he was dead? So him still being gone somewhere is the reason you do that. You don't want him to access it. So it would depend on if he had heirs. Well, but she was married to him. So at that point, it doesn't matter if he's got heirs or not. Like typically, so what happens is when one spouse dies, which of course she wanted to continue collecting his pension. But when one spouse dies, they may have a will that states certain things, but Ultimately, it would be left up to their spouse, and the spouse could actually change stuff before before they die. And so, it, whoever dies first is usually screwed. But my my thought was okay. She switched their joint bank accounts to be in her name only, and so that sort of lends me to think that she was trying to make sure he didn't access the money. 
which she wouldn't do if he were dead. Well, so the whole thing with this guy is I have wondered if he is this guy shoots John Doe. You came up with Skip Conrad, too. And I'm still looking at those cases and taking them seriously. But I the people they compared that John Doe to were basically criminals or probation. So with he's a better candidate. Don't you think that Fish is a better candidate or no? So I came up for that guy and you're like, oh, what do you do, hang out for six years? And so I have to say it to you. Like, what do you do, hang out for eight years? I I totally understand because one of the pieces that we were hanging on evidence-wise, and this is how it gets tied to Israel Keys, is February 2012. There are, when they find the bodies, there are water bottles that indicate some type of purchase or manufacture around February 2012. That coming up, the first question you asked was, is that proof that they're, is there proof that they're his? Like, were they in his stuff? Or could they be someone else's discard? Which goes back to that whole DNA thing from earlier that we were talking about is, you know, how do we figure out what elements of this crime scene tie back to the John Doe? I, I am interested to hear what you think the key to solving this particular case is, because this is the, the survivalist right now that is the most interesting to me. He had an obliterated serial number on a gun. And it's not that I think Eugene Fish would have done that, but the other behavior that she described about Eugene Fish with him cutting up the credit cards and smashing the computer and like the car, the truck that he had mysteriously reappearing, she said that she thought fish was going to Mexico or South America to disappear. Okay. Well, fine. If that's the case, what if he was just wandering around in the woods in Colorado? I'm not saying that Eugene fish is a serial killer. I'm not saying he's a victim of serial killer, but my obsession with trying to figure out what happened to him and who this guy should still was leads to this whole hunt in Colorado. I am tracking what the FBI did with a serial killer named Thomas Dillon and trying to see if I can apply those circumstances to this area of Colorado. We're also going hunting for missing children in Iowa and Colorado. And it's sort of old news now, but right in the middle of me starting this investigation and like putting all these clusters on a map and, and like running down all of these cases, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and the FBI suddenly pop up in that area. They announce suddenly that they are also looking for a serial killer. In the same area I am, but for newer cases, and some of the cases are just bizarre. And when I say in Colorado, that's where like almost everything that we're doing starts there. But because like Eugene Fish is from New York, that led me to some New York cases. Um, there's these cases that were tied between Iowa and Colorado. So there's some Iowa cases in there. Meg is sort of hunting missing persons along the way of, of what I'm doing. All of these cases will make up what is season two. And it's not just missing persons and it's not just murders and serial murders and serial assaults of other types. It's also these extremists that are out there. And there's missing persons that end up in this little tiny area of Colorado and New Mexico that weren't from there. They were from Georgia and Alabama and Texas. Welcome to season two. Thanks for joining us. You can reach us at 252-365-5593 or at True Crime Excess. Dot com or true crime excess at gmail.com if you want to send us a note 
This episode was brought to you by LabrotiCreations.com. That's L-A-B-R-O-T-T-I-E-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S.com. Check out the merchandise and specifically their fun pop pet art custom pieces made from photos of your very own pets. Use the promo code CRIMEXS, that's C-R-I-M-E-X-S, for 20% off a fun, brightly colored, happy piece of art of your own pet at their site. AbradiCreations.com. Music in this episode was licensed for True Crime Excess. The theme song was Indestructible by Noah Smith. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform or at T Public, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also join us on Patreon to fund future body exploration trips. But the best thing you can do for us is leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and share us with your friends. And we'll see you next time. at 10, an Iowa man is still on the search for his brother who went missing 36 years ago. KTVO Zach Richardson has the story. We're super close. You know, he was, he was a fun, uh, very smart guy that, uh, you know, we had a blast together when we were young. Mark Milligan and his older brother, Harry Dennis Milligan, had a very close relationship growing up. Unfortunately, that relationship was disrupted in 1984. On June 30th, 1984, Harry went out with his friends in Albia, Iowa. On July 1st, 1984, Milligan was reported missing. He was reportedly last seen heading back to his home in Avery, Iowa. After not hearing from him for a few days, the family began to worry and question the situation. Yeah, there was concern, you know, on, on my family's part and, um, you know, my mom and dad's part and everything. So, you know, it... Uh, it got worse as time went by. Uh, my brother didn't take off and leave. Something happened. For years now, Mark has been gathering information about the night his brother went missing. It is a difficult task to piece all that information together, but he doesn't plan on easing up in hopes of finding answers about his brother's possible location. Somebody's got to come forward. Somebody's got to know something, and sooner or later, you hope that their moral compass you know, points them in the right direction to say, okay, I got to say something. I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep questioning people. I'm going to keep, you know, digging for information, looking for that one little piece of information that tells me where he's at. Milligan hasn't been alone in the search for his brother. He started a Facebook page called Harry Dennis Milligan Still Missing, and he has received tremendous support from the community. The Facebook page has worked so well that it's caught the attention of people nationwide wanting to help spread the word about his brother. Milligan is very grateful for all the support. I can't say enough to the, to the community, to the people. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. At this point, Milligan isn't looking to solve a crime. He just wants his brother back. I just want to find him. I want to find him and bring him home. You know, it's, my parents was ne ne never able to do that. Um, you know, so um, that's always been my mission is, is to bring him home. Reporting for KTVO. Zach Richardson. Looking out the window, fogging up the glass. 
Trail so you 